Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Control the Coronables. In this episode, my co-host Dan Kiernan, the director of Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, was interviewed by Graham Foreman a couple of weeks back. Dan gives a smashing interview about his tennis journey to date. Dan is a former British number one doubles player, a US collegiate athlete who has competed on the Futures Challenger and ATP circuit. This is yet another brilliant insight for players, parents and coaches to get a picture of the journey of a tennis player. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. Today's special guest is Dan. Dan is in Spain at the moment. So, Dan, do you want to introduce yourself and tell me how the weather is over there? Well, do you know what? First and foremost, I'm watching rain. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it, but the, the whole of lockdown, I've been seeing pictures in the UK of all this beautiful weather, and it's been shocking here for eight weeks, which is, which is completely abnormal. Um, so, so that's what's happening. I mean, I mean, sort of grande. Um, it's good to see you, Graham. It's been it's been a while. Uh, you know, we, we obviously go back a while. I I set up my own academy in in sort of grande Spain, sort of tennis academy, about ten years ago. Now, uh, we were actually due to have our big ten year anniversary weekend in about three weeks. Um, so pretty much dead on ten years. Um, so yeah, no, it's fantastic to to connect and have a chat. Bob, I wasn't sure how I should introduce you in terms of your biggest accolade. Um, former GB number one, Soto Grande Tennis Academy owner, or the fact that you managed to carry me through a few doubles matches at County Cup over the years? Definitely the latter. And, uh, and I tell you what, the shoulders haven't recovered, Graham, from, from all of those years. And, and Nigel Beavers, who I now work with as well at, at Soto, um, we have the same conversations as well, but that was that was back in the day. I don't have it in me anymore. I don't think. Yeah, I certainly think you carried me a little bit more than Beeves, but that that's a different story, isn't it? Um, yeah, great, Dan. It's always great to connect with you, and I wanted to chat with you one about um, culture because you've set up what what looks from an external point of view phenomenal culture at sort of Grande, especially around control the controllables, and we should talk about that a little bit. But two, in yeah. terms of your pathway, because Again, coming from the northeast of England, which is not necessarily a hotbed for yeah. British tennis players, um, you, you managed to come through the system and get to British number one. Do you want to talk me through that process, the pathway, but also your mindset in order to actually get over some of the barriers that you had to face? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting one, Graham. I mean, you know um, as well as me what it's like in the northeast, and, and, I, and I think certainly back in the day there was. There was a lot of brilliance around, actually. You know, my, my reflection, when I think of, of the coaches that, that were around at, at that time, I mean, I was, you know, fortunate to have John Willis in my corner from a very early age. Um, but you Nigel Gartens of the world, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of really good things happening in the Northeast. 
Um, I, because I was the third, third child of four, two older brothers who just picked on me maybe, um, but just, you know, put me, I was there out in, in situations of playing sport from a very early age. Um, kind of got introduced into tennis by almost a bit of an accident, as, as often happens, you know, in the local community centre, you know, which was across the road from us. Um, and, then, and then from there, like you say, it wasn't normal. I mean, I got, I got called all sorts of names at school. You know, I was a decent footballer, um, but I was a bit of a whatever, whatever, that I was going off to play a sissy sport, you know, and that was, that was how it was viewed, you know, it really was. And, and, and I think probably, again, one of the reflections of mine, I never really knew I was any good. And, and I think social media has got a lot to say on that. You know, I think if I actually look at my achievement, it didn't get much better than when I was 14. You know, 14 was kind of the peak. Um, you know, 14, we won the world championships on, you know, both levels in America and the one in France. Um, we were unbeaten in 10, 10 international tournaments and doubles. I made the quarterfinals of the singles of the world championships. So I guess nowadays everybody would be raving about me you know on on social media whereas I went home and I was still getting slapped around by my brothers do you know what I mean there was no and and and, and also I think with the northeast mentality and and the values that I I I feel so strong about now I was very fortunate with my parents but also everyone that I was around, you know, there's real traditional values, I think, in the Northeast that have, have stuck there for, for a long time. So I, I wasn't going to get ahead of myself. You know, I wasn't allowed to. You know, it was just, that's the way it was. I had a big decision then at 14. I was playing, I was playing for Middlesbrough School of Excellence football. And then I, I got the offer to move down south to the, to the National Tennis Centre, Bisham Abbey. Um, which, and again, when I look back at it, my parents gave that decision to me and I was only, I was 14 and it was tough. Like I didn't sleep. I really didn't, you know, but, but what I was doing is I was, I was taking ownership at an early age of, of a decision. You know, I wasn't, uh, there wasn't zero push in any direction. Um, and I, I finally came to the decision. And it must've been three or four weeks of sleepless nights later, that that was, and then I made the, the move. So that kind of took me away from football and, and, and into tennis, which which I, I have no regrets. I had a lot of, lot of ups and downs and a lot of downs um, throughout that journey. But I do believe that the downs have made me as well, um, you know, and that's that's then massively contributed into into what I've, I've I've tried and continue to try and create out here in Spain. No, really interesting. You talk about a couple of things there, which I just want to kind of just ask some further questions on. One is um, parents um, yeah. and, and, and parents and helping kids make decisions and empowering them to make decisions. It, it seems to be different now than what it was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And one of the things that we've been working with Durham Institute of Sport over the last four years is trying to engage the parents more, but through education, through allowing them to start to feel and think what it's like being a 14-year-old athlete, having all of those pressures, having to make those decisions, but then either from a tennis player's point of view, walking on court and being completely isolated. As, as yeah. a team sport player, you can hide. You can be yeah. a Gary Neville and you can hide in a team full of brilliance and still yeah. make yourself look good. 
you can't as a tennis player. It's one on one. The intensity, the pressure is there all of the time. So, how do you guys at sort of manage the relationship with the parents? Good question. I mean, I, I think it, the, the big thing for me actually, it's I have a a little um, a little thing that I use in terms of developing players that I call "Watch Your Code," um, which stands for the the C is connect. So that's that's where the work is done in the first in the first part of any player that's coming to the academy, and that connection starts actually before they actually walk into the the academy doors. You know, so lots of conversations are happening before. You know, obviously, when they come in for their trial period, we don't take anybody without those trial periods because I, I want to make sure that it's the right type of person, one, coming to the academy, but also that we do connect with their story, that it's, it's a realistic story, that we can really say, yes, we absolutely can help here. Um, and then the same with the parents, you know, spend, spend a lot of time talking to them and understanding where they are you know i've had i've had a parent walk through the door and say i've got three girls they're they're going to be the next serena and venus and they're 15 16 17 and they can't hit the ball they're literally air shotting the ball and i could take their 50 60 grand but i will always have that honest conversation because I, i believe when there's a gap in reality and expectation we have problems you know, so so the big thing that I try and do with all parents before anyone sets sets foot is get those expectations. What do they expect and need from us? And this is then what we expect and need from you. You know, so that relationship is starting there. And I think if that's done well, then it causes it, it saves a lot of potential problems later. And that's not to say we don't have our problems and we don't have our difficulties with parents because we're looking after the number one asset of, of, of any family, you know? So I think having the empathy and appreciation of that is also important, but like, but the starting, the starting point and how that's done is, is very important. And, and if I, if I go back into my own story, it's that John Willis connected very well with my parents with that stuff, you know, and, you know, he would, he would talk a lot to me about that now because I'm still very much in touch with him. How fortunate I was to have parents that had such strong values that I was able to able to have, and 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 that can happen obviously in a by luck. <laughs> that can happen by luck that your coach happens to have that, or or like I say, I think we as an, an international tennis academy, we've got to try and make sure that happens before people come because once they come and that's not in place, and I've I've learned that through error as well. You're now just chasing your tail. You're chasing that relationship. You know you're 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 basically in 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 trouble with that, which leads to unhappy players. Unhappy players lead to unhappy coaches, and obviously unhappy parents. And now you're in a position where it's then very difficult to all all work in in the right direction. Yeah, good good answer, Dan. Thanks for that. Um, I talked with Pete Shuttleworth, who's the performance manager at Birmingham City this week as well, and we were talking about doing personality traits and emotional intelligence assessments on players coming in. Because you're yeah. right, you can have the perfect culture, you have a great team, everybody works. You bring in one superstar player, but they're so disruptive to the team, actually everything then just crumbles around you. So I like the fact that you're having this almost a bit of an interview process first. Uh, maybe we should start doing psychometric assessments on parents before they come in as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a re- honestly, it's a really interesting one because it's the impact, no matter how good we might be as coaches on, or not or whatever it might be, 
there's no two individuals that have a bigger impact on the mindset and the psychology of of, of, a, of a player, of a person than the, than the parents. You know, I mean, I, I was very fortunate with my parents. You know, I, you touched on it there as well about the kind of the, the sport of tennis being the brutality of it. You know, tennis is like boxing. You know, we don't punch each other, but it is, it's, it's gladiatorial. You know, and it, and it brings with it some really, really strong emotions it's from a young age. And the one thing I've always said and reflected on with my parents is that, that probably they didn't, prob- probably they didn't quite understand that. And that was one frustration I had because when I was playing, I had a lot of frustrations. I had a lot of raw emotions you know, living away from home, wanted to do this properly, you know, worried about my future, worried about what everyone thought, going through all of these different situations, being put on a bit of a pedestal maybe in the Northeast and then feeling I had to then play that role, you know, all of these different things that, and, and, and the reality is I didn't have strategies or, or the ability to deal with those emotions. And, and I always felt, and it's, and again, it's a little bit of the, an uneducated, person which many people are uneducated when it comes to emotions and and how we deal with that side of things was just just stop doing that just just crack on you know i didn't know how to i didn't know how to you know so that would be the the one the one area that i would look at that we again have to educate the parents on you know of actually and this is a big thing and we you know with we've touched on control the controllables which i know is a it's a terminology that's used a lot in the field for, for me it's not about controlling emotions and it, because an emotion isn't a controllable you know and that's you know the word the word control you you can't as a as an as a person as a human being we can't control what thoughts and feelings that we have you know if we feel nervous and anxious or frustrated or what we, that's what we feel <laughs> and it's and and it's about teaching people to notice that and become aware of that so so now they can build a tolerance to to that feeling to be able to then try and put their attention somewhere else and and that's very much when i when i look at the control the controllables that's what we're saying what an emotion is not in our control so let's not worry about that too much but let's notice it but what is in control is 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 our response to that, our our intentions, you know, our preparation, our you know, all of all of those different things, and that's where where we want to have our mind. Um, but I would say that would be a big a big reflection of mine that, and just that simple thing of everybody understanding you can't control an emotion. I wish my parents had known that a bit more when I was younger so they could maybe empathize a little bit more with what I was going through. Yeah, but and that is part of evolution, isn't it? As we as we progress and we learn more and we develop and you yeah. know, I, I was probably a little bit younger than you where I don't I don't even think I had a real coach until maybe fifteen, yeah. sixteen, apart from apart from my dad kind of stuff. So I, I missed out on the coaching element but also the psychology thing and the control the controllables it's it's a phrase. You guys have picked it, you've ran with it, you've embedded it, and that's an important thing. It's how you guys define it. So some people will like the terminology control the controllables, some people won't. Some people say it's a bit faddy kind of stuff. But for me, yeah. it's how you define it. So the, the phrases that we have at Durham University with the hockey guys is reassuringly talented, 
which sounds yeah. a little bit snobby. It can come across as a bit arrogant. But when we asked the team when I first started working there six years ago, what does that mean to you guys? And we yeah. defined it as things around hard work, commitment, dedication, all, all those types of words. We redefined the term. And you guys have done that with control the controllables. So phrases are phrases. You, you have to buy into something, but you have to own that phrase as well. So give me some examples at Soto about what control the controllables really mean on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, there's a couple of things that I'd like to talk on on this, Graham, actually. is Firstly, to answer that question, you know, we, we talk about the daily bill, you know, so to, to be good at anything, there's a bill to pay, you know, you know, you, and so absolutely who's taking care of those things every day. So sleep, you know, yeah. food, you know, some people like to do morning journals and gratitude work, you know, and that, that's certainly something that works very well, certainly with the older players. You know who's who's really coming in and, and taking care of their warm ups in the morning to a, to a good detail. Who's taking care of their cool downs? You know who's doing it right. You know it's one thing to say you want to do something, but who's actually? And all of those things are very much in their control. You know, so so that would be something on 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 a daily basis. Like I say, in terms of the sports psychology model, we then use at the academy that the word control. When, uh, on a non-controllable which we would put emotion in it in so we're then saying well actually what you can control within that is you can control the routines that you're using you know you can control the plans and the intentions you have for every point and then the big word is you can control how you commit to that you know so if we take somebody who is lacking confidence when when we lack confidence the biggest thing it tends to affect is our commitment to a shot you know, so we actually said, well, you can commit without confidence. You know, it's not, you're still in control of the commitment bit, you know, and we do a lot of work on them building their awareness and understanding of, of, of how they notice how they feel. And obviously at times, it's going to be times, especially younger players, they won't be able to notice that until later on in the evening, you know, and when they reflect on the session, actually, after half an hour, I probably did start to, we call them passengers, your negative thoughts and feelings. I did start to experience some difficult passengers. And, and at that time, I was unable to pick that up. But I can jot that down now with the goal to be able to then become aware of that in the here and now. Okay, I'm aware that it's starting to happen because we also know that once the behavior sets in, it's very difficult to change that. You know, so that awareness stage is a big one. And then, okay, what is in your control, guys? You're now aware of it. You can't just make yourself feel good. <laughs> but what is in your control is you take your time, you use your routine. Okay, you've now got your one, we call it having your mind on something that's helpful, the most helpful attention. And then it's about then committing to that. It's not about executing it. You know, we can't always control the execution. You know, some days we execute better than others, but you can control committing on it. So, so it very much comes into, in, into that. Now, the second thing that we do, and we've, we've worked really hard on this, is at the start of every year um, in, in the September, I get all players, and not always all parents because they're not always in, in Spain, but all players and all coaches, and we, put, we get into focus groups. And the first thing that we do is we then get them to talk through in their focus groups what their ambitions are 
So you'll have Evan Hoyt, quarter-finalist at Wimbledon last year, in a group with Matthew Keane and my son, eight years old. You know, but what's, what's the, their ambition? They'll then present that as, as, as different groups, and we'll then agree what the ambition is of the academy. And over the 10 years of doing that, the ambition's never been less than Division One college stroke professional tennis. So then it's like, okay, so the ambition is for you all to play to professional level. And that's what the academy is. If that ambition's different, that's fine. Then we adjust from there. The next question I then ask and get them into focus groups is, what, what do you want your environment to be in order to, to give yourself the best chance to, to get to that ambition that you've set? And they then go away and they talk about certain things that they believe are really important for their environment and then, and then present that. We then sit down as a full, full team, even though it's an individual sport, I do believe in team environments for tennis, is, is then, then from there, we then come up with what our values are for the upcoming year. And I, what I try and then do with it, so this year we've, we, we agreed on growth as our word which is gratitude, respect, ownership, want, the daily bill, and honesty. So those are our six values. Now, I have to also be honest with this. I've done this in the past, and it's looked good. Beautiful, lovely poster, written down nicely. You speak to the players two months down the line, two weeks down the line, no idea. So, so what we now do as well is that's very much in the terminology as control the controllables is we get together and we have a circle at the end of every Friday. It's something that we've, which we've always done at the Academy, you know, it represents the togetherness of the Academy. You know, that's what we do. And we, we get play of the week awards, which are always based on the people that have, that have done the values the best that week, you know, and, the, and, and controlled the controllables the most that week. It's not who's hit the best backhand down the line, you know, on, on the Thursday afternoon, you know, so bringing attention to it. But then we always have two players that have to put their hand in the air uh, midweek to say, I want to speak in the circle to give examples of how people have really showcased the values through that week. You know, so just different things that try and bring it alive. So, so it truly is happening rather than just great exercise, done that, wrote them on paper, We'll look at that in three or four months' time, you know, which I, I've learned that as I've gone. In the last three or four years, I believe we've done that much better, and that's then really impacted the, the, the culture of the, of the academy. Yeah, I think that's where there's a huge misunderstanding with performance psychology completely in the fact that you ask a question, what values would you like to hold? And we all would like to say honesty and integrity. Because who's going to put their hand up and say, right, I don't want to be an honest person. I don't want to have any integrity. Nobody's going to do that. But actually, do you live them? Do you breathe them? Do you really understand them and buy into them? So that's the first thing. The other thing which I really like, Dan, about that is that with psychology, people still think it's a bit pink and fluffy. People go, oh, you're just sitting down. You're lying on a couch. You're telling people how you feel. I don't get that. It's not me. You know, it's not what I'm about. And for me, psychology is an action. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you say and what conversation you have. You have to then go and commit to the action because that's the only way that you can improve. And having Absolutely. the right strategies and interventions takes as much practice as as hitting a backhand down the line. Completely. 
No, 100%. I mean, we, the, the, the analogy we use on it, we call it mental fitness. So, you know, and, and just like physical fitness, you know, and if you, if you want to get physically fitter, we all understand you have to go. To, it, it, you don't get physically fitter by a fitness coach saying, if you do this and prescribe a program, you're fitter. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go and do it. <laughs> and you have to. And the other thing, if you don't do it every day, you lose your fitness. <laughs> Yeah, I used a phrase yesterday at Durham University on one of the team talks that we're doing at the moment because everybody's in isolation. And it said, um, knowing is just not enough. No. Because we all know that if I eat really good food, I'm going to be healthier. We all know that actually if I do a little bit more physical activity, I'm going to be fitter. We all know those things. Yeah. But it's the action, isn't it? It's the commitment to that too. Yeah, 100%. No, what really important. Cool. You also mentioned about you, you having downs during your career as a player um, yeah. and, and we've certainly been on court together where both of us haven't been able to control the controllables. And yeah. I've always said, never, never judge, never judge a player um, from their tennis ability and, and personality on court, because it is like a boxing match. You're in a fight, you're trying your best to try to get an outcome yeah. or to play to the level you know that you can play at. And it's very difficult and not all of us perform the way that we would like people to perceive us to be off court. Yeah. I've always thought you don't judge a person on court, you judge them off court in terms of personalities. What do you guys do off court in terms of um, helping nurture that, that environment that allows them to be better people? Yeah, so again, another good question, but I mean, we'll do, I mean, let's take during this period, we're doing a lot of work with them still, you know, via Zoom, you know, with obviously teaching them all of these things. But we'll also one of the big things I like to do is I like them to create their own presentations, you know, so that their life skills, their learning life skills, they're, they're presenting to, to other people, you know, which is putting them in uncomfortable positions would be one thing. I think in normal world <laughs> is if we can say that if this is our new normal. Um, it's it's where the traveling is so important, you know, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer at a, at a, a, not a big performance. I don't really like the word performance in tennis, but let's say if we talk about a more elite level of tennis, you know, you can't really coach at that level unless you are traveling and spending time with the players at tournaments and understanding exactly how they're feeling in different situations. And then we talk about, you know, the conversations on aeroplanes, the conversations at dinner time, you know, the time that you're spending with them in all those other extra bits, that for me is when the real kind of coaching and mentoring happens. You know, in in reality, it, the way that a lot of programs work is I might coach a player, but they come in at two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. I finish at one fifty nine with the other player. They're on my court. I now have to give a session because parents are watching and I feel it needs to be high intensity and high energy from the start. And then I have to say goodbye because the next player is coming on. And actually in reality, I never get to really connect with that person and have any impact on them as a person. You know, I'm just really, I'm developing skills on in a tennis sense. So that's one thing that we're fortunate in is our players that are at the academy. We have a lot of time with them. You know, we are going to a lot of tournaments with them. When it rains, we massively welcome that because we then we every session happens. 
but it just means that now we get a chance to actually sit and talk to them. You know, we do really lots of performance planning and in our performance planning, it is also about life skills as one of our areas, you know, so it's, it's, it's opening up those conversations to what skills they also want to want to develop. Um, we have certain rules, you know, where they have, they have to say good morning in the morning. You know, if, if a coach speaks, they have to look at them. They don't have to give a big, big answer, but there has to be some form of acknowledgement that the coach has spoke to them. You know, before, before a session starts, they all need to line up on the, on the court and they need to have their rackets so that they're there and they're listening to the coach. And I think all of, all of these little bits, uh, they, they massively contribute as well to, to helping people develop as, as people, which is obviously as, as important as, as developing as a tennis player. Um, because they'll only play tennis until, if they're lucky, 30 years old. Um, yeah, so and, I, and I don't know what the odds are in the world of tennis, but we, I was working with uh, Newcastle United's academy, one of the academy coaches last week, we were delivering a, an online Zoom conference together. And, and she was saying that it's 0.001% in terms of what you, an academy player will make it as a professional football player. Yeah. Um, and I have no idea what the odds are in tennis, but I'm sure it's probably just, just a small, if not even smaller, because the yeah. numbers um, are smaller in, in, in tennis than professional football. Um, Dan, uh, we, we obviously both went to the States, and I think I possibly could have been the, the very first Northeast person to go to the States and graduate with Fred Flintstone and Bar Barney Rubble. Um, videos were still in black and white in those days, and then you, obviously you went as well and graduated from a brilliant university at LSU, and how much do you think your your influence now, your connection to psychology and emotions, your ability to understand culture, how much do you think that's been molded from your education in the States? Um, definitely, definitely a lot. I, I, and I think, I think my answer to that is more, I was lucky in lots of ways. I wasn't quite good enough, if that mean, makes sense. So because I wasn't quite good enough at 18, I got the opportunity to go to America, you know, because I wasn't quite good enough as a, as a professional player, I had to find other ways to make money and, and create different opportunities. You know, and I think in, in tennis, those that maybe don't realize that early enough, they fall into the black hole of tennis, which is quite dark and quite, and quite difficult, you know? So I, I would say I was very fortunate to get to go to America. It wasn't on my radar. I didn't really know it was an option. You know, nowadays there's an argument that maybe it's, it's almost talked about too much. You know, it's kind of in everyone's face now. And so, you know, I've certainly softened. It's an option for people, but it's not the only option. Um, you know, people have to make their own decisions, but back in when I was doing 1998, it was kind of seen as failure to go to college. You know, that was the, very much the thought process and um, I just happened to play a tournament in New Orleans where a coach spoke to my coach and said look we like Dan you know what's he looking at doing I was then fortunate that my coach had an honest conversation with me Ian Barclay at the time and said look Dan I do believe this is a good option for you um, and then it was quite I actually had to go back because of the, the, the school we were at I hadn't done a, a, a science GCSE, so now I didn't get in with the clearinghouse. So age 17, 18, I had to go back and, 
I had to take a GCSE in three months to, so I was eligible. So even those things, it wasn't, it, all of those kind of difficulties have helped me, yeah. you know, that, and it was, I was at the national tennis school. They were all going off to orange ball. I remember it really clearly. They were all going to the airport, going off to Miami and they thought they were saying goodbye to me. They were crying. I was crying because I was stuck at Bisham Abbey on my own. You know, real difficult, real difficult times. Obviously, perspective, you know, there's more people have bigger difficulties, but really challenging times that I had in those, in those ages. And then I went to America, and I remember it really clearly. After two weeks, I had a really clear thought. I'm really good at tennis. I hadn't thought it. I, I, I had not thought it for a long time. I'd been kind of so down on myself that, yes, I was a good tennis player, but I was surrounded by, I was 60 in the world in juniors, but I was training with people that were one and two in the world in juniors. So, so I, and I probably didn't quite have someone grab me and, and give me enough positive feedback. I got that in America. I really felt it. I loved the team environment, you know, it worked for me. That was, it got, it got everything going. It's probably when I realized that I had some leadership skills, you know, I became the captain of the team. I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning before matches and I'd be, I'd be calling the team. I was, you know, I re, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. So I, it's, it's massively influenced me in so many positive ways. One that it turned me into a positive person from being quite negative you know and it gave me that two two it gave me that t understanding how important team and support are so so now at the academy we we are a team environment with individual pathways you know but we we really have tried to create this this culture that everybody is helping each other and everyone's you know Evan Hoyt makes quarterfinals at Wimbledon the youngsters are really happy about that because they're really close to Evan all the coaches are happy because they're all working with them. I might be the lead coach, but it's not. I'm not Evan Hoyt's coach. He's he's at Soto Tennis Academy, um, and and it's really influenced how we've tried to set up those ways of working, um, and and yeah. And then lastly, I was very lucky that I had fantastic coaches there as well because I went in blind. I thought I was going. To, I thought I was going to live in New Orleans. I, I I arrived. I got picked up. And then I got driven an hour and a half, two hours to Baton Rouge. And I was like, what? I've never heard of Baton Rouge. What? What? I had such a, so, so really I went in quite dark um, and landed on my feet, you know? So, uh, it, but I certainly think your experience, some people have amazing experience and some people not as much, but making sure you're at the right place. And it comes back to people again with the right people. And, and it is, a, it is a fantastic experience for somebody to have. That's for sure. I mean, it's maximizing the moment, isn't it? And I yeah. think we, we miss that sometimes. You know, we, we get presented with an opportunity and, and you were there for four years and I was there for four years. And, and sometimes it goes and it yeah. goes too quick and you miss the moment. Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you really get the guys at Soto to, to think about this is their moment? You know, they might be with you for, I don't know, maybe six months, a year, five years, 10 years. They might be at the academy for a significant period of time. How do you get them to become aware of the moment that they're in and try to, try to maximize that and excel it at this moment in time for them? I think a big one on that, Graham, is, is showing them some of the realities of the sport. You know, I think there's a, I think there's a big education piece on, for us as coaches on, on 
on educating players and parents of the realities. And that will come in two forms. So the reality of, of the ATP WTA is the average amount of time on the tour is six to seven years. Mm-hmm. So that's not, that's not my opinion. <laughs> it's yeah. not, I'm not giving my opinion on that. That's, that's fact, you know? So, so I think that would be one thing, you know, I think, you know, letting them know, you know, making sure they, they understand that X amount of people are making money from this is, is also important that not to scare people, but that's the reality. You know, Paul, Paul Henry Matthew was number 12 in the world. He was in the top 100 for 12 years. He won 256 matches in his career. He lost 265. It's the reality of a sport. Roger Federer, arguably the greatest male tennis player of all time, has lost 46% of points he's ever played. You know, and, and, and giving these realities, and I know it's a bit different to the question you're asking, but in terms of the same break points, a player misses a break point and shouts, oh, I'm with so many chances. The tour average is is thirty percent of break points are taken, yeah. so we need to get three or four break points in order to to get a break. You know, so so getting them to understand that, and we'll do a lot of off court work with the players where they research. I've got all of these statistics from them. Mm-hmm. You know, the players have researched this and then they present it. You know, so and then we encourage them to present it at home as well. So these things start to stick. And they start to actually understand understand the sport a little bit more. And, and I think if they can understand that there isn't massive longevity in normal for most for most tennis players, then hopefully they can understand that actually they have to make the very most of this and, and also give them the perspective that it's not just about the number by their name. You know, it's you. It's what you then put into it. And, and again, if I use my example on this, and I didn't have anyone guide me on this, it's a reflection since. If I look at people that had a much better number in terms of ranking next to their name compared to me, that when I was a player, I probably perceived myself to not be as important as them or whatever it is. You know, we. I've then had those people then ask me for jobs over the last few years. And everything's completely flipped. And almost the difficulties that I've gone through have developed other skills that have enabled me to have some form of success after. And, and that's a message with any player that I work with or that we work with at the academy, we really try and get across. You do not judge yourself on your results, on your ranking. You know, you are judge yourself on the type of person you're becoming. You know, what, what are you doing? How are you developing these areas? Because you hopefully will have a long lasting life and successful life and you'll be working for 40 or 50 years of it after, after your tennis. You know, this tennis bit is tiny. It's a really small, it's a really small yet important part of, of your life. Um, so, yeah, those would be different ways that we try and bring that together because it's an important message. It is, and, and it makes failure more manageable. And yeah. we, we literally fail all the time. And we talked about the control of controllables and we talked about reassuringly talented. It's defining what that statement <laughs> really means. And actually yeah. failure when we define it in terms of maybe current sense is that we see it just purely as loss and you know, I lost the point, I lost the break point, I lost the match, I lost to somebody who I shouldn't lose to. Well, actually, when we look at it holistically and we redefine that, there's probably been a lot of successes during that match as well. So did you play to your ability level? You know, Did you perform how you wanted to? Have you worked on the stuff 
that the coaches wanted you to do during that week. Um, so we see failure slightly differently. And when you throw out statistics like of it's a maybe a 50-55% win-loss record on the tour, um, you start to see the best players in the world lose a lot of matches. Yeah. No, lots and lots. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the performance values that we would use at the academy, and, and some people might have their own individually, but just as a, as a collective is, look, you, obviously you're striving to win. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's important. But you're striving to improve. You know, so every time you go out there, you know, you're striving to improve and, and really getting people to, to recognize that. Third one is, are you enjoying the journey? You know, are you enjoying their experience? You know, which I, I think a lot of people forget to do, you know, and doing a, a podcast that I've set up the last few weeks, speaking to Grand Slam champions and speaking to people that have gone on and done great things. They always talk about how much they were in this moment of enjoying the experience which is where they performed at their best. And then, and then the last one is giving back something significant to others, you know, so whether that's giving back to the sport and how we behave, you know, and those are the... Thanks for listening, guys. A little bit strange having a, having a podcast about me, but I'd like to say a big thank you to Graham Foreman and GF Solutions for the opportunity to talk, yeah, just talk sport, talk mindset, talk mentality. It's something that we're all very passionate about. Um, if you want to get more information on Graham and what he does on YouTube, if you go to GF Solutions, you'll see lots of fantastic interviews, lots of great people in sport, out of sport, mindset, and, and there's lots of key learnings there. Hopefully that gives you a bit more of an understanding on where Control the Controllables sits so close to my heart and what we do at the Academy. Um, a big thank you for all of your support. As we keep saying, please do keep subscribing, keep liking, commenting, reviewing. All of those things really help with the podcast getting up a little bit higher in the search engines so more people get to find all of this great content that these fantastic guests are bringing together. So a big thank you to you all. I'm Dan Keenan, my co-host John McGann, we control the Coronables.